Uh, so we're still on session 26 of our study sheet. Um, we're going to start on large point 2, Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. So we're now on the second missionary journey of Paul, and he has brought along with him Silas. Last week we learned about Timothy, uh, this young man who was spoken well of by the brothers. Uh, he was a good Christian. He would make for a very good pastor. And so... What do they do? They start training him, and they take him along, and before they do, what, what do they do, if you remember? They circumcise Timothy, and our text tells us why. Because of the Jews who were in those places, for all they knew that, or for, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, so they got Timothy circumcised to remove that stumbling block. So he could go and help them preach the gospel uh, without interference of any concerns regarding circumcision. Now today we're going to start in on Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. They're going to continue their missionary journey. Uh, and we'll start re by reading, I think. Nick, if you would start us off with verse 6, and we'll go verse by verse. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Elijah, they attempted to go to Bithynia. Alright, so, are they just deciding, ah, where should we go? What, what looks like a, a good place to visit? We could see some sites along the way, and then maybe if there are people around, we could deliver the gospel. Is that how they decide? No, no of course not. Who's leading them? God. God. Uh, in fact, we have a reference to the Trinity here in these verses. Uh, so first off, in verse 6, we have, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then up next we have uh, verse 7, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bithynia. And then in verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we have the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is leading them to where they should go. God is directing their missionary journey thus far. And not just telling them where to go, but also what? What to do? Where not to go. Where not to go. All right, you are not supposed to go into this region over here. Now, the text does not specifically tell us why, uh, but God knows what he's doing with his church. God knows exactly how to grow his church or to make it smaller if need be. Uh, it's all in God's hands. He is directing everything. And they have complete and total trust in God and, and what he says to do. They're removing themselves as an obstacle and going exactly where they are led. So they go uh, north of Iconium, and it's 
such a shame that our big beautiful map is on the opposite side of all of our locations that we get <laughs> to talk about on the back. So you can see their missionary journey there, though. They don't go into the heart of Asia Minor there, but they go north and work their way over towards uh, Troas. Um, why do they go to Macedonia? Right. Because of the man and the dream. He is calling out for help. Come to Macedonia and help us. And how does Paul decide? Uh, well, what kind of help do they need? They need the gospel. Because what is Paul? He's a pastor. He's a missionary. What is their mission that they have been sent to do? It's to spread the word of God. Uh, it's not anything else. They don't go there to... Uh, build schools and houses and everything like that for them. Well, that's certainly a fine thing to do in some cases. Their primary purpose and the one that they always keep at the forefront of their mind is spreading the gospel. So they all uh, get ready and they prepare at once. They sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called them uh, to preach the gospel to those who are in Macedonia. And we have a little bit of fun history uh, background to go along with this too. Macedonia is the home of Alexander the Great. Um, and off the top of my head, I don't know nearly as much as Pastor Moline does, but I hope that's recorded. <laughs> I would I would confess that again. <laughs> no need for a recording. Um, but you know he was known as like the greatest commander in history. Conquered the vast majority of the known world. Uh, he would go along and just absolutely militarily dominate everything in his path. The, his home country of Macedonia, the gold devalued like to one-tenth of its original value, I think, uh, because of all the spoils and all the money and stuff that he plundered from all these nations, and he kept sending it back, and they just had so much of it. It's like, well, this is just worthless to us now. You know, we have too much money. Inflation was just absolutely through the roof. Uh, because he was just so absolutely successful. Another uh, absolutely amazing, great military commander of that same era was uh, Julius Caesar. You know, he conquered the Gauls over in France and everything, which everyone thought was totally impossible because they're these wild barbarians. And he worked his way partway up into the, uh, the British Isles and everything. And his his military campaigns were legendary and still are to this day. Even Julius Caesar, at 32, I think, he stood at the statue of Alexander the Great and wept because he had barely accomplished half of what Alexander the, the Great had accomplished. So he's just this absolutely massive figure coming out of Macedonia. That's our, that's our historical background for the day. What else did you have to add? I, nothing. I mean, that's the truth. <laughs> to conquer the world and die by the age of 34 is an amazing thing to have accomplished in those short years. It's the same as Mozart, right? Now that I'm getting older, I look at Alexander the Great and think, well, what have I done? Mozart wrote all his music and died by age 34. Jesus saved the world from sin, death, and the power of the devil and died at 33. Most <laughs> now I'm 38 and yeah. Yikes. 
Luckily, I'm still 28, so I have plenty of time to conquer the world. Uh, I'm still good to go. <laughs> uh, go ahead. How did they know this was a man from Macedonia? Um, that's a good question. The text does not tell us, actually. Um, I assume that it was just revealed to Paul somehow in the dream, whether it was standing in an obviously Macedonian area or by his his dress, his clothes, because lots of different areas had you know, very specific fashion choices that they would choose. Text doesn't tell us, but Paul knows. This is a man from Macedonia. Uh, let me see, what, what do we have next here? So this is significant. There, there's a, a very specific call to, to Macedonia because it's a completely different area. Up to this point, they are primarily around, you know, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, all technically on the continent of Asia. And this is a, an extremely Jew-dominant area. You know, this is the home of Israel, where most of the Jews in the entire world uh, are. And that's what they're used to. So being called to Macedonia is a completely and totally different culture. On top of that, the Roman Empire has a much more dominant uh, cultural impact here, where they're going to be called, to Macedonia and, and everywhere to the west of there. Uh, and that's significant because, and we're going to find this out in a little bit, uh, where they get called to and where they wind up preaching is a Roman colony. And the Roman colonies all have to worship not the Jewish God, not uh, the triune God, but who? Caesar. It was state mandated. It was a state mandated religion that everyone has to worship Caesar, because in their eyes, uh, Caesar was a god, and he demanded worship. And if you refuse to worship him, well, that could be penalty of death. So this is a completely and totally hostile environment. They're going from predominantly Jews that all know the Old Testament. Uh, that all understand there's a Christ that is supposed to be coming to save them, and now they get to deliver this excellent news of, hey guys, guess what? Christ has come. Uh, he's died to save you from your sin. And they all go, oh, finally, you know, what a relief. And now this is going to be all totally alien information. So I guess the way that they would probably say it is this is an area of vast majority Gentiles. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know anything about a Christ. All they know is Caesar and some of the Greek gods, because this is around the area of Greece as well. They know Zeus and Poseidon, or if they were more Roman culture dominated, they know uh, Mars and uh, whoever the other ones are that I can't think of off the top of my head. Apollos. And <laughs> Apollo. Apollo, yes. So... It's totally different, totally uh, different culture, completely separate continent. This also has very specific results. And us here in this time, we can absolutely see what God was going for by saying, don't spend your time in Asia right now. Uh, we, need, we need you here. God is sending them over here to the European continent for a very specific region, or for a very specific reason. And that is what? Where is 
on our sheet we have, uh, where is the center of Christianity today? At this point, it's Jerusalem. That's where all the brothers are, the apostles, disciples. Uh, that's where they had their council to decide on this issue of circumcision. That was, you know, the capital city. That was the center of everything. But now that's no longer true. Jerusalem and Egypt and Syria and everything, they're all dominated by not Christianity, but what? Islam. Islam. Uh, kind of the antithesis to Christianity. And so now, bringing them over into Europe, where's the, uh, the center of Christianity today? Or Lincoln, Nebraska, right? Oh. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would be, it would be in Europe, Rome, really. I mean, would you say anywhere else? I would say Rome, Vatican City, where the Pope is. That's widely considered to be the center of Christianity today. God was moving his missionaries over, all in preparation for establishing his church in Europe, and that's where the center of Christianity would move to eventually. So being in this point of time is a huge advantage to us because we can see exactly how God has worked all throughout history and how we came to be right here today. But for them, it was terrifying. Going to this brand new area full of people who were totally hostile to them. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of this chapter. Uh, people were not very happy to hear this new message. Uh, Let's see. We're going to read Acts 16.7 and 16.10 again. I'll read those out loud myself here. And pay attention to the change of voice between these two verses. So we have verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And now verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What do we have in difference in voice here? Third person to the second person. Right. And that tells us what? First of all, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's the author. So when he goes from using the third person to the second person, what does that tell us? He's joined up with them. Right. So this is the point where Luke has joined them, and now he's giving all of this stuff, uh, all these accounts, firsthand. We're going to keep on reading on into Acts uh, 16, verses 11 through 15. So whoever was next, I didn't keep track of that. Of Thyatira, the fellow of purple heads who was worshipper of God. 
The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household was well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, so they sailed 130 miles over to Neapolis. They traveled on this major, major road. We have uh, information on which road this is, the Via Ignatia, to the city of Philippi. And you can still see this road. Pastor, have you gone and seen this road yourself yet? I have not yet. Okay. Um, but it's there. The Roman pave, pavement stones are there. You can walk on it. They've got it all preserved and set apart, and it it uh, goes from the sea up over this little mountain range into the big old plateau where Philippi is, and so it would be that road. It's the only one that went there that Saint Paul walked. And I'm sure you're going here. Step right those. That again is a historical fact that we can verify archaeologically which indicates this is not an invented book or written later, but someone who had first-hand knowledge walked that road with St. Paul, and you can go and see the same exact spot today, walk on the same stones. Right. Yeah, so we have uh, lots of corroborating evidence. That's one of the amazing things about the book of Acts, how much information and how many details Luke gives us about all these things, uh, all to help us pinpoint these locations thousands of years in the future. All these things we can go back and we can see and we can see that they're real. None of this was made up. Um, you know, it's not, if somebody were to make it up, there'd be lots of incorrect details, right? You know, oh, they, they were going to walk from this place to this place. And the, well, there's a, a lake in the middle of there. In fact, uh, those are completely separated by rivers and stuff. Uh, they couldn't possibly walk there. You know, we'd find all kinds of incorrect details if someone were to try to make all this up. The fact that all these facts are in here to corroborate all this uh, is really kind of nice for us Christians today. <clears throat> so they go to Philippi. And again, it, it specifically tells us that this is a Roman colony. And they can't find a Christian or even a Jewish synagogue within the city limits. They have to go outside to the riverside to find a place to pray, a place to uh, worship, or have their divine service. And uh, let me see. I think I might have skipped ahead here. I've got point four, B1. So the city of Philippi, this is where the decisive battle was fought that turned the Roman Republic from the Roman or turned the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire, set up the eventual rule of Augustus Caesar. It was a massive battle. 24,000 people died in one day. So imagine the, uh, the city of Beatrice, Nebraska. That's about 12,000 people. Imagine two Beatrices worth of people dying in one day. And that's a lot of people even today. But with, you know, the population being much smaller back then, that was huge. Uh, and that still has effects even here to this day. So then back to, this is a Roman colony. They didn't have any place to worship within the actual city limits. They have to go outside uh, to the side of the river, and there they find a group of 
Who? Believers. Say again? Believers. Well, I think it specifically says women, right? We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. This was very typical throughout the entire Christian church. It was always women who believed first. They were the ones that uh, a lot of times would get religion, find religion, and bring that into their households. And then a lot of times through them, their husbands and the rest of their families would then start to believe as well. And we have that uh, here in Acts for us today. So found a group of women, and Paul does what with them? So he was conversing with them. He was sharing the gospel with them, uh, doing exactly what he was called to do, being a missionary, being a pastor, sharing the gospel, and uh, whose heart was softened here? Lydia. And who did this work? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit uh, softened her heart, or uh, what, what's the specific words that it says here? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's really important for us today. Um, to always pay attention to who exactly is doing this work. I think uh, Lynn isn't here today, but she always you know, would bring up that she talks to her friends and they always have all these questions. And she's afraid that she is not making a good enough confession. Or... When I talk to a lot of the shut-ins that I go and visit, they'll always relate to me. Well, you know, I was talking to uh, this friend of mine or, or this friend of mine over here, and they have all these questions, and I don't always know the answers to them. Uh, so what do I do? Well, first of all, what we always need to recognize is that it, it's not us. It's not our work that is truly changing anybody's opinion or changing anybody's mind. This is not simply information that you can logic into someone's head. This is always the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's primarily what we rely on. Uh, and then second, as Christians, what do we just naturally always want to do? Pray. Pray, that's a great answer. I was thinking of something a little bit more specific. Witness. We come here to church. Uh, we want to hear the word of God. We want to hear preaching, and we want to hear teaching. We go to Bible studies, so that we can always learn more about it, and we can always do the very best that we can, realizing first and foremost that it's God's work to convert believers. It's God's work to grow his church or shrink his church as he sees fit. Uh, we always have to repent of ourselves. That's the number one thing, and, and I think that's completely tied into the first and uh, most important commandment you shall have no other gods we always rely on God to grow his church to do absolutely everything uh, so we've got point four under two they went to a riverside to find a place of prayer none could be found in town and they spoke to a woman who was named Lydia of Thyatira which is a city in Turkey so there's just a little bit of irony here that the very first European that was converted actually was somebody from Asia, where God initially said, no, you're not allowed to go there yet. <laughs> uh, just an interesting thing. She was a seller of purple goods. Purple goods. We've talked about this a few times. The, the color purple was associated with what specifically? Royalty. Royalty. Why is that? 
because it's hard to get right. Um, they had to take just thousands and thousands and thousands of all of these sea snails. And they had to get this little vein out of them, and they had to uh, go through this really whole long process that Pastor Moline has memorized, and I don't. Um, and <laughs> it would take so many of them just to get a little bit, enough to dye an entire garment. Please, we, regale we us. Where she's from, archaeologically speaking, they have mountains, mountains of sea snail shells. Because you have to break it open, pull out the, the slug part, I don't know what you call it, the goopy part, <laughs> and then pull that little vein off and you collect the veins and you put them in a bucket and just like dye one shirt would take like 10,000 sea snail veins to do that. It's actually interesting because it actually is yellow to start with. When you first dye it, it's yellow. And then you set it out in the sun, and the sunlight interacts with the yellow to turn the yellow to the purple color. And it's not purple like we think of purple. It's more of a reddish. I didn't wear my purple, purple. clerical today, sorry. Um, it's, it's actually closer to the chairbacks we're sitting in than it is to the LWML purple. No offense, LWML. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's an interesting process, very expensive and time consuming, and so there's a lot of money wrapped up in it because of that. Right. A lot, it was usually the labor hours, which was the most expensive. Have you ever had a house built or anything like that, then you know how that is too. It's, the labor is always expensive. Say again? Everything else they had to fill their day with, you know, just getting enough food to live. Who would have, who would have dreamed this idea up? I, I was going to say, who would have figured this, this out? <laughs> that this tiny little baby yeah. Macedonian scientist Somebody who was, yeah, somebody who was really bored, I guess. Somebody, I, some nerd. They had nerds back then, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who thought it up? Who was the one that wanted to pull out a sea snail and rip its vein up? You know? But they did, and that's then the royal color. In fact, the emperor, the Caesar, there was a law passed that he was the only one who could dress all in purple. And Roman senators could have purple, but they could only have a six-inch strip across the bottom of their toga. And beyond that, purple really wasn't allowed for Romans. So none of us would have been allowed to have purple, uh, just because we weren't in the... No offense again, we're not in the ruling class. Yeah, there are lots of really fun laws and, and things like that back then that to us today would seem completely ridiculous. What? I can't wear purple? That's ridiculous, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's the way that they, you know, had to identify things back then. They didn't have Google where they could just Google people's pictures to see, okay, is that the emperor or not? I've never seen him before. Oh yeah, it looks like him. No, you know, wore purple, surrounded by all these guards and everything, that's how they had to identify themselves. Or wearing rings and having all these specific seals that only 
these certain authority figures could have. Um, so we have Paul talking to, uh, it's Lydia, right? Lydia of Thyatira. And he converts her. She was already a believer in God, it says, a worshiper of God. Whether that means she was a Jew or, or what have you, we don't really know. But it just says a worshiper of God. And she heard the sermon of Paul, and that resulted in what? Her, her baptism. And then she got her entire household baptized as well. Now, this is a lot of times a verse that will come up when people talk about uh, baptism in general, but specifically baptism of infants. This conversation will be had, especially with Baptists. You know, they'll say, well, you know, it's, uh, it's got to be a decision that you make for Jesus. It's an outward sign of an inward change and all these types of things. Uh, they'll say it's only for adults. You know, the, the age of, what's the word that they always use? Uh, it's not the age of consent. Say again? Accountability. Accountability, thank you. It's the age of accountability. When you get old enough to be able to make decisions for yourself and then you are accountable for your sins, that's when you can get baptized. But here we have biblical evidence that, well, Lydia and her entire household were baptized. Now, it does not specifically say Lydia and all of the adults that were of the age of accountability in her household got baptized. It was everybody. They didn't make a specific distinction on age or anything like that. It was just everybody. So this lends more credibility to, A, the early church belief that the church has always believed from the very beginning that infants can and should be baptized. And B, that there's biblical evidence. The Bible never says that there's an age limit for baptism. It is if you have flesh, uh, if you are sinful. And we know everyone who has flesh has a sinful nature, so everyone should be baptized. So this is one of the verses that you can always pull out and say, well, the entire household, not just adults, not just this specific uh, people, group of people or anything, but everybody. It's always, it's useful when we have those discussions. Then after that, Lydia says, okay, now, if uh, you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, please, pastor, stay. You, you baptize me, my entire household. We would love to have you. And he goes, okay, fine, we'll do that. We'll, uh, we'll stay at your house. Which, that brings us to the end of our sheet. So now, after this, we are uh, flying free a little bit. But do you have any questions on anything that we have covered thus far? Go ahead, Nick. Um, I, it's easy to understand how the Holy Spirit would say yes. <clears throat> any ideas on how he would forbid them or prevent them? Speaking the gospel. Speaking the gospel is a good kind of thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, how would he? How would he say? Well, no. First of all, um, he. I would say he didn't say no, right? Rather, he didn't just say, "Okay, no, you can't preach the gospel." He said, "Well, go over here." It was rather than a no. It was a redirect because Paul and Silas and uh, Luke and Timothy 
they still want, went on and preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit was directing them somewhere very specific. So first I want to say, I don't think that he said no. It was a redirect. Now, exactly how the Holy Spirit uh, directed them in that regard, it doesn't tell us. Uh, there are several different ways that it could happen. We've seen all kinds of different uh, examples of the Holy Spirit leading the disciples or the apostles to do this thing or that thing. Like, for example, with Peter, when he went up to the rooftop to pray and he got his vision from the Lord, you know, the sheet descending, and the Lord says, uh, Peter, take, kill, and eat. Well, God can communicate with his people through visions that way. Or we have in this very session we've talked about, uh, Paul, he had a dream of somebody directing him where to go. And that was a dream from God. So whether it was a vision or a dream or you know, um, an oracle or whatever, it doesn't really tell us. But we know that there are several different ways. Um, but that's not overly important to us today. What other examples do we have, Pastor? Uh, well, what I also would say is Paul and Barnabas are not the only preachers. They have established churches in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, Pisidia, and so there's already congregations there. And we also have seen how when there's these people out preaching and teaching, is it just stay localized, or does it keep on spreading on its own by God's word? So they're going to come back and they're going to hit Ephesus, and they're going to kind of have it surrounded, just Paul and Barnabas and Luke and uh, Timothy. These guys are kind of having it surrounded in that regard. We know Barnabas is down in Cyprus, and who knows where he's going to go. Peter is still preaching. John is still preaching. Um, tradition says that John ends up in Ephesus uh, later on. So rather than, like Vicar said, saying, God forbid them from going and saving these people. Like, what if my Uncle Bill was 88 years old and about to die? Mm -hmm. And you sent him somewhere else? What the heck's going on, God? I think we can say, God, in his infinite wisdom, is working to get the people where they need to be to preach the word to allow the most people possible to hear the word and believe at the right time. Same thing's happening now, right? So God has brought Vicar Goodrow to Good Shepherd for the last year. God willing, if he can pass his classes, the gift, right? <laughs> In a year, God will send him somewhere else. And God is able to manage the entire church much better than we are. And so we trust that he's going to do so for our good. And really, that sets us free, doesn't it? Can you imagine if all of the pressure for forming the church was actually on St. Paul. And he had to visit every city, preach every sermon. And every sermon had to be so good that it would convert everybody who heard it. We've taken God out of the picture and then put it all on that man. And he's, he's 
not going to be able to do it. He's going to fail. So rather, I think this shows a beautiful picture of how real mission works. They're preaching the word. They're going where God sends them, and they're preaching the word, and God is doing the work and taking care of the church and converting people and making them Christians. And I think that's the same way we ought to work. We're going to do a book in our elders' study coming up in a couple of months. I don't know if I think we'll start about this month or the next month. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole idea that we're going to talk about. Um, that God is actually the one doing the work of conversion, of mission, of building the church up. And all these places that they're visiting, are they Christian now? No. God also closed those churches when the time is right. Ask him when you get there. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's one of those uh, things that we, we completely and totally trust in God to preserve his church according to his good will. Um, we don't always know why he chooses to do certain things and chooses not to do other things, but... Overall, we know certain specific things about God. We know that he loves the world. We know that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Uh, so while we might not understand everything that he does, we do always trust in him for our ultimate good. And we know that he is a God of love and a God of certainty. So we can be certain, at least, in our own salvation. I just want to say, okay, why do you ask that question? Why do we close those churches? When we think about it in human terms, we think that means the church is getting smaller. But it, it isn't. The church will never get smaller. Because the church is actually bigger than what we can see here. God closed most of those churches in Asia by killing the Christians that were in them. Okay? Uh, most recently, you can see this in history books sometimes. In Turkey, there was the Armenian Genocide, where they crucified Christians left and right. Was it right before or right after World right War I? Right after Right after? Okay? We think, what a terrible tragedy. Now there's no Christians in Turkey anymore. But, where are all those Christians? What happens when you kill a Christian? Right. They're in heaven. And the church will never shrink because all we're doing is transferring our members. From the church militant to the church triumphant. So again, we can be calm and let God work because he knows what he's doing way better than Pastor Moline, so we figured that out yet. <laughs> or Pastor Coffey, or Victor Goodrow, or the Nebraska District, or the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. God, in His infinite wisdom, is always working, and the church is always growing. And it will never shrink. Good Shepherd might shrink. The United States might not be Christian. We could become like Turkey. Looks like it might. <laughs> but the church on earth will 
will never lose? Excellent question. What else do we have? What other questions or comments or thoughts so far? Yeah. And so in these Greek cities, that's going to be a benefit. We're going to get there. And maybe uh, Billy Joe Lutheran had things that would make him better suited to be in Thyatira and Philadelphia and Hierapolis and these other cities that God told Paul not to go We don't know. We can't say. But by the, the year 325, Asia was the center of Christianity. Places that God told Paul not to go. So what did God still do? Still sent the word somehow. Sorry for interrupting. No, that's fine. Totally fine. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about, uh, I've read that there is, uh, well, there's a notion of the first Rome, the second Rome, and the third Rome. Have you ever heard of that? Um, a little bit. I can't say I have specific knowledge, but I've definitely well, heard it. Yeah, the first Rome would be where Peter was bishop.
All right. Well, then we're, we'll keep on reading on through Acts, I think, um, unless you have any more questions. All excellent questions so far. Okay, we'll pick up in uh, verse 16. I think that we will just read through, what is that, verse 18. Verse 16? Yes. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of demonation and brought her own much gain by fortune telling. By her owner's much gain by fortune telling. Followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Okay, so uh, is what this girl, through this uh, spirit of divination, I think it calls it, um, is it speaking the truth? Yeah, <laughs> it actually is. Uh, these men are servants of the Most High God uh, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Um, and now, the other thing that we should point out here, it says that it had a, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. What do you think this is talking about here? She was a fortune teller. Uh, now, at, in this day and age especially, like the, the biblical day and age, I should specify, um, by whose power was she doing this? Satan. Satan. It, was, it was a demon. This was not uh, prophesying in the name of God. We saw lots of prophecies already happen in the book of Acts, right? We had... Uh, Someone stand up and prophesy about the famine that would happen in Syria. That happened in the days of Claudius, Luke tells us. Uh, that was a prophecy that came true, and it was a prophecy by the Holy Spirit. Um, we have lots of prophecies that are from God, but this one specifically, this is not a girl prophesying by the power of God. It's with a spirit or, or a demon. Yes? So the prophecy about the famine, was that before, maybe before Christ died? No, uh, it, was, it was made after. After Christ had already ascended into heaven, and the brothers were there in, I think this was in Jerusalem still at the time. Um, and this man stood up, and he was a member of the church, he was a Christian, and he, he prophesied by the Spirit. Uh, and that's specifically what Luke tells us. Because I've heard this question asked, why aren't there prophets today? Why aren't there prophesying for God now? That's a and good question. Go ahead. The answer was, there was there's no need for, for prophets once Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the, the main prophecy of the Old Testament. Right. But then this example comes up and so I go, whoops. <laughs> Where do I go from here? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so there are kind of like major and minor prophecies, right? All the most important and major prophecies have to do with who and what? Christ. Christ and his coming. Um, and after that, there are other prophecies that God will give to his people that have to do with maybe less important issues, but they still pertain to his church. All the most important prophecies came true with Christ. Now, 
Is it technically possible for God to give a prophecy to someone today? Yeah, of course, God can do anything. Um, but it's really not necessary because we have, what do we have here today in this room uh, that the brothers and sisters in Christ did not have during the writing of the book of Acts here? We have, we have the entire New Testament. Um, and God speaks to his church rather than through prophesying, but through the New Testament, through the writings of Paul and Peter and John and, and all of this. That's the way God speaks to us today. Prophets really aren't necessary, I guess I would say. Go ahead, Barb. Well, how did they know that she was possessed basically by the devil just because she was a fortune teller? Um, probably not, because I would imagine that... How do they tell the difference between real and fake, probably? That, the Bible does not really specifically tell us. That would most likely be knowledge given to Paul, maybe by uh, the Holy Spirit, knowledge revealed to him by God in some way. Uh, it doesn't specifically say. Do you have anything more to add to that? I don't have a lot of specific knowledge about that. Well, the things she's saying are not coming from God, they're coming from Satan. And she's able to accurately predict the future enough that her owners can make a lot of money off of her. And so when you add those two things up and that says, yeah, she's probably possessed. And to be clear, possession is still a thing today. It doesn't happen as much here in the United States, but it does happen in the United States. Um, and it's more common in Africa, in Asia, in places like that. Satan works a different way here than he does in those places because Satan is always seeking to push his advantage as well. And we just kind of poo that sort of thing anymore. So God doesn't, or Satan doesn't do it as much here. So, she is possessed because she's doing these things accurately and we know it's not from God. Yes. And one point that I want to add to that, too, since we're on the topic of uh, possession and, and all of that kind of uh, supernatural stuff, one of the ways that Satan tries to uh, teach us or tell society that, you know, oh, no, the, all that stuff isn't real, uh, he's brought about all kinds of wrong and odd teachings about ghosts and people coming back and, and haunting people, you know? There's like all sorts of that kind of stuff that we find all around the United States. You know, go to Cincinnati, for example, and they'll do all kinds of ghost tours with you and stuff like that. Uh, and they try to push all these totally erroneous things and lump them all together. I think this is absolutely the work of Satan. Oh, yeah, you know, ghosts and spirits and demons and possessions, all that stuff is just fake. None of that stuff is really real. And that's when you have to go, well, hang on. There is some of that stuff that is actually real. Possessions, demons, that is actually real. There's biblical evidence for that. Uh, but ghosts, people coming back from the dead to communicate with you by putting pennies in certain places or by slamming doors or things like that, that is decidedly not real and not supported with biblical evidence at all. I think we should say it's decidedly not ghosts. Okay. Yeah, that's... Because when you kick the bucket, 
where do you go? One of two places. One of two places. <laughs> and God doesn't forget anyone. And he doesn't let you come back and <laughs> give messages anyways like that. Um, and so demons can do certain things like that, but it's not ghosts. It's not your dead relatives that are coming back to tell you anything. Uh, it's usually trying to mislead you. When God communicates with you, he is not going to slam doors or your cabinets or mess with your thermostats or anything like that. God very specifically tells you how he communicates with you. And that's through his word. That's through preaching and it's through the sacraments. Uh, so we have in verse 18, she kept doing this for many days. So she just followed them around and continued to proclaim that uh, these are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, while this was a true saying, what she was saying is true. They're men of God. They are proclaiming the true way of salvation. Uh, she certainly was not saying this to be helpful, right? Why do you think that she was going around saying this, this demon possessing her? They were, yeah, they were profiting from her. Um, I think it's important to realize the context we've been talking about right now. Where are they in, in this instance here? Well, they're in a Roman colony. And are, is this Roman colony and all these uh, Gentiles here, are they going to be receptive to men of God who come proclaiming to them the true way of salvation? No, not really. Uh, and we saw this when they were going through their first missionary journey, too. People would come and stir people up against, uh, against Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey. And now this is what we have this poor possessed girl doing here. She's trying to go around and announce exactly who they are and what they're trying to do, but not in a good way. Stirring people up against Paul and Silas and Timothy here. Uh, it's all an attempt to get them thrown out. Satan is still trying to work very hard in this city here. And so he's not covering up what they're doing, but he's trying to uncover it and rile people up against them. And does it work? Let's find out. <laughs> Starting in verse 19, we'll read through verse 24. So, we have Satan here. He comes and uh, just absolutely annoys Paul so much that he does what? Casts the demon out. <laughs> All right, get out of here. In the name of Jesus Christ. It is Christ and his power that really casts this demon out um, through Paul. And the demon gets cast out and then it works. Paul took the bait. <laughs> and... Uh, 
that made the owners angry because they were profiting off of this girl and, and this demon that was doing this fortune telling. And so Satan's ploy here uh, was successful to a certain degree. He got the city riled up against them. He got him uh, taken to court for committing this you know, so-called crime. And he had all the crowd that was all riled up against him. And finally, they succeeded in, in getting Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy beaten thrown out for their beliefs, for doing something that objectively to us is good, but it wasn't profitable. So that was their fate. That kind of brings us to our time here today. We will probably go back over this section again next week just to be thorough with it. Um, But do you have any questions or comments or anything like that in our time that we have left today? I have a question. What's your question, Pastor? In uh, verse 10, we switch the uh, subject of the sentence from they to we. But then, just a second ago, you said, next week we <laughs> will go over this section again. And I was wondering if you wanted to amend that and switch it to you. Members of the bodies of Christ, all of us. We're all one in Christ, Pastor, so... <laughs> I say the we as the greater church. <laughs> yes, the royal we. Yeah. No, that uh, that brings my final session here to a close. I won't be back next week, but Pastor will be, and uh, new vicar will be. So, uh, blessings on the rest of your time studying here. I'm going to miss this study a lot. So make sure you tell Vicar Rigo thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, this has been an absolutely excellent learning opportunity for me. Um, hopefully you also got to learn at least a couple things while I've been here too. <laughs> hopefully it hasn't all been me, but uh, I very much appreciated the time that you give me, your attention, um, and especially the expertise of Pastor Moline and all of his um, masterful knowledge of the book of Acts. It's fantastic. So. I've, I've told him he has to keep on sending me the sheets as he develops them, so, so that way then we can, uh, maybe I can use this in, in my next church, wherever I go, we can go through the book of Acts. Um, then I'll have to text him all of my questions that I can't answer. <laughs> we don't know if we'll be done, but it's going to be Yeah, maybe I'll get called here in 25 years, and we'll be on oh, the final chapter of Acts. <laughs> Uh, let's, uh, let's say the Lord's Prayer together to close our session today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.